and I can't get this smudge off my glasses, and so it's catching that line. Romans chapter 1, we're going to look at verse, uh, verse 13. It says, I would not have you ignorant, brethren, that oft times I purposed to come unto you, but was let hitherto, that I might have some fruit among you also, even as among other Gentiles. I am a debtor both to Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and the unwise. So as much as in me, I am ready to preach the gospel to you that are in Rome also. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for today, for your blessings, for your goodness to us. And Lord, I pray that you'd be with this Bible study. Help it to be an encouragement this evening. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. You know, uh, obviously, preacher's not here. If you're just your very first time and you decided to come on a Wednesday night, we're glad you're here. I hope you'll come back when the pastor is here. This is your first time to come on a Wednesday night. I encourage you to come back when preacher is here. Uh, my name is Jeff Robertson. If you don't know me, I'm the missions and outreach pastor. And uh, here we go. Um, you know, we don't just <clears throat> sit around and talk about spiritual things, you know, all day while we're here at the church working. Sometimes we actually have to get up and go out and do stuff. And the other night, or the other day, Buchanan and I had to make some hospital visits. And we went to this this lady's room and. I'm standing there talking to her, and as you can imagine, I was kind of dominating the conversation. And uh, so it started going a little bit long, and we had already agreed that when we got done with this visit, we were going to go eat lunch. And Buchanan kept complaining about being hungry and wanting to go eat, and, you know, he's not interested in seeing about, you know, less fortunate people in the hospital. He just wants to go eat. (laughs) And so uh, last Sunday when I preached, it was my wife. Looks like tonight it's going to be Buchanan, and he's right there in my crosshairs, too. But anyway, uh, so, so I'm talking to this lady, and I watch Buchanan, and he eases around beside her bed, and there's a bowl of peanuts there. And so he grabs a couple of peanuts and starts eating them. I mean, I don't think nothing about it. I don't think this lady doesn't have any teeth, so I don't really think she's going to be eating a whole lot of the peanuts in the bowl, you know. So the conversation kept going and got a little longer and a little longer, and Buchanan ate a few more peanuts, and pretty soon he'd knocked out the majority of the peanuts in that bowl right there, and and the lady looked around and seen me eat the peanuts, and he realized what he'd done. He said, ma'am, I'm really sorry. I'm just really hungry. We're fixing to go eat lunch, and I started eating your peanuts. She said, oh, honey, don't worry about it. She said, I've already sucked the chocolate off of them. <clears throat> you know, how many of you tonight have ever taken something for granted? You know? I, great story. Uh, these people inherited a house, old turn-of-the-century home, antebellum-type home, and they were really excited. This is a true story. That's, that story about Buchanan, that didn't really happen. Uh, this, this is a true story. These people inherited this home, and when they start going through the house and getting things, and, you know, in an old house, sometimes you look up, and there's something of value in there, but mostly it's a bunch of junk, and they go up into the attic, get to digging around, and they find this box, and in that box are these little small miniature-looking baseball cards that are all tied up in neat little bundles. And they don't think much about it, but they take the cards and take them to a professional and do a card shop and get kind of an, uh, an estimate or an evaluation, an appraisal done of the cards. And in that card collection was a Honus Wagner card, which is the most valuable baseball card in history. After it was all said and done, there's over $3 million worth of baseball cards in this little box. I don't know why I can't find a $3 million box of baseball cards. But, well, there you have it. Now, my question to you is this. Were those cards worth any less money just because somebody didn't really know what they were worth? Well, of course not. They were worth the same thing. They still had great value, although they weren't recognized for what they were. And for how great they are. We have access and we have uh, uh, things in our life that are, that are very, very valuable. They're worth a lot, but sometimes we just don't recognize them. You know, I, I can think of a few times, a couple, I'm ashamed to say, jobs that I've had that were really good jobs. 
but for some reason or another, I got sick of them. <laughs> I've quit more good jobs after vacation. I don't really think that it was the, the job was bad. I was just really enjoying vacation, so I wanted to extend it a little bit. And you quit that job, and you go to work somewhere else, and you get there, and you realize, man, that was a really good job. I wish I had stayed there, and I can't get back now. You just take it for granted. Uh, you know, we take relationships for, for, for granted sometimes. Friends, relatives, loved ones, we'll take them for granted. Parents, I mean, we've all taken our parents for granted. I mean, I thought my mom and dad, when I was growing up, I thought they, I thought they printed $20 bills somewhere in the back part of the house. Until I got a job and had to start paying for my own things. And then I realized that that's not how it worked. You work and you get paid for the work that you do. And um, Spouses. Spousal units. We take them for granted all the time. My wife, you would not believe how much she takes me for granted. I mean, really. It's crazy. I'm just kidding. I think I made some ladies mad a couple weeks ago when I preached on Sunday. What, I mean, it's just a joke. Simmer down, we've been married 26 years. If she can't take me now, she's in trouble. But we've all been guilty of taking our spouse for granted. I have a great wife. I have the best wife in the world because she can take my jokes. Uh, But I'm guilty at times of taking her for granted. It's just kind of what we do. You know, Paul is describing something in this passage right here. And he says that I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Now, I think if we surveyed every person that's in here tonight and every person, you know, this, this, build, this auditorium will fill up twice on Sunday. And if we ask everybody that was in here, are you ashamed of the gospel? Well, they'd say, well, of course not. No, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. But, you know, I think at times we can all be guilty of taking it for granted. We don't recognize it for the greatness that it is. And so for a few minutes tonight, and it could be really short, a lot of times I don't have any idea how long something's going to go. It depends on how much fun I'm having and how much you laugh at my jokes. I go longer when you do that because you encourage me. But uh, (laughs) that's the last laugh I'll get tonight, isn't it? If we don't laugh, you'll shut up quicker. Um, But for just a few minutes, I want to talk about the greatness of the gospel. Now, in discussing the greatness of the gospel, we've got to give a definition of it. We've got to have an understanding of the gospel. And I proved a point today on the staff hallway. I asked one guy, it had to be Buchanan. I said, can you give me a definition of the gospel? He spits it out word for word exactly how the Bible defines it. Very impressed with his answer. He's a student of the word, right, Buchanan? But I asked some other people, and I won't tell you who they were, um, and, and they sh- they're church members, they're faithful. Both have been in church all their life. And they gave me an answer, and it was close, it was all around, but it wasn't a biblical definition of the gospel the way Paul describes it in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So that's what we want to look at. The first thing we want to look at about the greatness of the gospel is the definition of the gospel. I never know what's going on up here behind me, if if the outline's even going up there and, and, and... If it's not, okay, there we go. The definition of the gospel, Paul gives it to us in 1 Corinthians 15. In verse 1, it says, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also you have received and wherein you stand, by which also, by which also you are saved, if you keep in memory that I preached unto you, unless you have believed in vain. For I delivered unto you first of all that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture, and he was buried, and he rose again the third day, according to the scriptures. Now, the definition of the word gospel is the good news. But when a person talks about the gospel, when they term the gospel, they're talking about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is the definition of the gospel. Now, you have to understand, for Paul to say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, you have to know where he came from and what that meant. Because Paul had to align himself with the very thing that he had opposed for so long. He had to align himself with the thing that opposed what he was taught as a child. He was a a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was raised and tutored and reared in the, 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 the law and the bondage of it. And so for Paul, a Judaite, a, a, a Jew, a Pharisee of Pharisees, to turn his back on that thing and say, now I have repented of what I once believed, what I once thought made me okay with God, I've changed my mind about that. And that's what the word repent means. It means to change your mind. 
And Paul changed his mind about that, and he said, I now believe in the gospel. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is the thing that I believe makes me okay with God. And we have to define that thing and be accurate with it. And some of you, I I see how your facial expressions, you're looking at me like, yeah, well, I already know that. Well, I'm glad you do know that. But the thing that makes this important and the thing that makes this an issue is the bumper sticker that you see on the back of somebody's car that says coexist in the little different religious symbols. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not wanting to fire up the Crusades again and start killing everybody that disagrees with me. That's not what I'm saying. But you understand that the very definition of the gospel, the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ, when you define that, it makes it impossible for me to coexist with groups of people who differ in how I see that. Because if you believe their system, and if you believe what they teach, and if you make allowance for that, and you make it okay, what they propagate sends people to hell. So it is a big deal. And it's not that I'm against those individuals because I want a relationship with those people so that I can share the truth with them. But as a belief system goes, there's only one way to be reconciled or joined back or made okay with God, and that's through that death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the only way. Very, it's pretty simple. But it's amazing to me how many regular church members struggle with real simple doctrine. Guy I've been going back and forth with a little bit uh, through emails and and, and private conversations. I'm not going to get in a public tussle with somebody on Facebook or something like that. But but, uh, the the things that, that he began, he made this statement that there were, he added to salvation. So there was a lot of extra things that go along with it. Here it is in a nutshell. Mankind and man in general, we're sinners. doesn't matter how good you think you are. doesn't matter how moral you are. And it really doesn't matter how bad you are. If you were here several years ago, I was preaching on a Wednesday night, and I gave the illustration about a boat. There was supposed to be a boat up there. I'm not even going to try with it. I gave up on the boat. Um, there was supposed to be a boat up there. And, and Paul, in the first three chapters of the book of Romans, gives a description of three different groups of people. He talks about a, a really hedonistic, really bad group of people that all they do is, is party. He's, he's describing the Romans. and You all know the, the, the reputation that the Romans had and the things that they involved in, kind of like modern-day America. And, and so you had this really bad group of people that were sinful, hedonistic, He goes on in chapter 2 and he describes a group of people that are really moral and upstanding, good folks. And they couldn't stand those heathens. Well, if you were to put those two groups of people in a boat, you'd have the partiers on the back of the boat. And they're involved in all types of immorality and drinking and smoking and living it up and partying. And on the front of the boat, you've got a group of people that are following all the rules. They're wearing their life jackets. They're sitting down. They're keeping their hands and feet inside the moving vehicle. And they sit up there and they detest those people on the back of the boat. They hate them. They can't stand them. They got all that traffic coming in and out of their house, selling dope down there. We hate those people. You see that? That's the good, moral, upstanding people. Those are the partying people, the people on the back of the boat that they can't stand. And that's the way Paul describes them. He goes on in chapter 3 and he gives a description of a group of people that are, that are, that are religious people. And these people have a book that tells them how to, what they're supposed to do. If, if they were on this boat, they would be driving the boat. They've got a manual that tells them how to be a sailor. They've got a uniform that makes them look like a sailor. They've even got a mark on their body, kind of like a, like a tattoo, like sailors will have, that says they're a sailor. They'd be driving the boat. Do you know what these three groups of people have in common? They're all in the same boat. If the boat goes down, it really doesn't matter if you're partying on the back of the boat or following all the rules in the front of the boat. You're going down. And the Bible says in, in Romans chapter 3, verse 14, whether you be Jew or you be Greek, you're all under sin. And it is that sin that has separated us from God. And I'm amazed at how people will, will have an emotional feeling about something. 
they'll see something a certain way and they'll have an opinion about something a certain way. And regardless of what Scripture says, that's how they see it. Well, can I tell you tonight, your opinion doesn't matter when it differs from Scripture. And I'm not, I'm not trying to be smart about that. I'm just trying to maybe, maybe rattle you just a little bit and say, hey, look here, just because Granny told you that, and I'm sure your grandmother was a wonderful person, she just might have been wrong. The only thing that matters is what the Bible says. You know what I think? I think that a person really, at the end of their life, all of their good deeds should be put on a scale and all of their bad deeds should be put on a scale. And if their good doesn't outweigh their bad, they should have to go to hell. That's what I think. But you know what? It doesn't matter what I think. Because the truth of the matter is, I'm glad it's not that way because I'm quite certain that my bad would outweigh my good. I'm a pretty sorry individual. (laughs) I'm glad my opinion doesn't matter. Because, see, that, but back to the conversation, our sin, the wrong, the bad that we inherited from Adam, all the way back to Adam, is the thing that separates us from a holy God. You see, God is holy, He is perfect, and He can have no fellowship with darkness or sin, and that sin has caused a chasm or a separation between us and God. And the only thing that can forge that separation is the gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the definition of the gospel. I I hope that five years from now, if you're sitting in here tonight and somebody asks you on a random question playing Bible trivial pursuit, what's the definition of the gospel? You can say the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And if the answer on the card is anything different than that, then throw the card away. Because that's how Paul defined the gospel. Well, that's the definition of the gospel. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But I want to look at the distinction of the gospel for just a second tonight. Because it's the distinction that makes that T at the end of coexist. It separates us from all of those other belief systems. You see, regardless of what religion you are this evening, and if you're not a Christian and you haven't put your trust in that gospel, in that death, burial, and resurrection to reconcile you back to God, then you probably believe that there's something that you have to do, something you have to perform. Your merits are somehow involved in your admittance to heaven. I've got to keep a certain set of rules. I've got to uh, be really good. My good has to outweigh my bad. I have to help old ladies across the street and pay all my bills on time and don't use dirty words. And... But that's, as much as that seems like that would make sense, that's every other religious belief except for Christianity. Because the thing that, distinct, that, that separates the gospel is that it takes it all off of a failing man, a man that cannot do what we muster up and try to think we can do. And even if you do fix your marriage on your own accord, and you stop drinking based on your own willpower, and you clean your life up, just because you stopped doing some bad, that doesn't mean that you have the righteousness of Christ. That only comes through the gospel. The distinction of the gospel. The word distinction is excellence. That sets someone or something apart from others. I want to look at a few things that sets the gospel apart. What makes the gospel special? First of all would be the origin. Matthew 16 verses 13 through 14 says, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they say, some say that thou art John the Baptist, some Elias, and some Jeremiah. Or one of the prophets, and then Jesus asked the disciples, He saith unto them, But whom say ye that I am? You know, the question tonight, I watched the video and I was going to play it tonight, but it's just filler. <laughs> I was just going to play it to kill some time. The video is them, them interviewing these people and asking them, Hey, who do you think Jesus is? And you got similar answers to that. Most of them, uh, would say, well, I think he was a good man, and he was a good teacher, and um, 
he uh, did a lot of good things. And you had a few in there that were obvious Christians. They gave the right answer. And had one lady in there just said, I really don't know who he is because I don't believe in him. Okay, good, good honest answer. But, it, you know, it doesn't matter what society thinks and what the population thinks or what the majority thinks. What Jesus is interested in is what do you think? Who do you think Jesus is? I think a lot of us can give a verbal answer. We can give a, an answer that is correct according to some scripture in the Bible. But has that belief changed you? Has it affected how you live on a daily basis? You see, the thing that makes the gospel distinct is about who it is. In, in Romans chapter 1 here, verse, verse uh, 14, it says, I am a debtor both to the barbarians and to the wise and the unwise, so as much as in me, I am ready to preach the gospel to you that are in Rome also, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. See, the first thing that distincts, that makes this gospel distinct is the origin of it. It's about Jesus. It's not about Buddha. It's not about Confucius. It's not about Allah. It's not about uh, uh, Muhammad. The Bible talks about an Acts. It says in Acts chapter 4 and verse 12, I think it's in your notes there, it says, Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. In John chapter 14, it says, I go to prepare a place for thee, and where I am there you may be also. And it goes on to say that no man comes to the Father except by me. That's what Jesus says. So as much as society wants us to all get together and, and be, get in a big circle and share a Coca-Cola together and sing some Kumbaya song and everybody coexist and get along, the thing that eliminates that, the thing that makes that impossible tonight is Jesus. Because the gospel, the death, burial, the resurrection eliminates that. It makes that impossible. And when you say, I believe that Jesus died for my sins, and I believe that he rose again on the third day, that makes your belief system different than everybody else's. And that puts you in a category by yourself. Now, I'm not telling you to go and bow everybody up that has a different belief because you want to be able to reach them with this gospel. Hey, I don't believe in, I don't think the answer to the Muslim problem is to bomb them all. I believe the answer to the Muslim problem is the gospel. I believe the answer to that is people that they're dying and going to hell. And the answer to that is for them to see that Christ died for them and wants to save them and desires a relationship with them. But if they don't see Jesus as the Son of God and the origin of that gospel, that is the foundation, that is the beginning of this thing. Because if you view it any other way, if you have allowance for anything else, the Bible said there in Acts that there is no other name. There is no other way. There is no other avenue for you to be okay with God except for through Jesus. This whole notion of there's, uh, this is the same belief system, we just call him by a different name, that may be so until you bring up Jesus. Because that's what distincts it. That's what makes it different. That's what separates it from all of the other belief systems is Jesus. And this gospel is very distinct in its origin. Not only is it distinct in its origin, but in that verse it says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and to the Jew. It is the power of God unto salvation. The second thing that distincts it is its function. I asked the question there in the notes, what does it do? We go back to what we were talking about earlier, about how this sin has separated us from God. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and verse 18, I believe it says there, and it says, And all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ. You see, the function of the gospel, the purpose of it, the reason for it, is because man, as a sinner, was separated from God. The only way that sin can be paid for is through death. The Bible says without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. There's no way for that sin to be taken care of. There's no way for it to be paid for. There's no way for it to be handled unless there is a death involved. Unless there is blood applied, that's the only way. So that puts you in a situation tonight where you can make two choices. You can be responsible for your own payment 
Or you can depend upon the payment that Jesus paid for you when he died on the cross. You see, God, and from the very beginning, there's a conflict in the Bible of the holiness of God and the sin of man. And the only place that that conflict was ever brought together and reconciled was when Jesus died on the cross. Because when a perfect sacrifice died on a cross, he paid a debt that you and I could only pay with our eternal soul. The only way that I could pay my own sin debt is to go to hell and stay there forever. Which means I could never pay it off. It's the way I feel about my mortgage sometimes. But this really is a debt that has no end to it. If a person dies and they don't take advantage of the gospel and what it affords them, and they don't, they don't get a hold of that function of the gospel, then they will die and go to hell and stay there forever. The function of the gospel, the purpose of that gospel, it is the power that brings salvation. It is the very thing that reconciles us back to God. Without the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, if he doesn't come to earth and die on a cross and pay your sin debt, then man has to pay that sin debt himself. That's what distincts and makes the gospel different than every other belief system is that death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The function of that is to join us back to a holy God. The Bible says that the wage of sin is death. Romans 5, 8 says that God commendeth his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It was that death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ that made it possible for us to have a relationship with God. You see, because without that, Our sins are not paid for, and the righteousness of Jesus is not imputed to us that it talks about in Romans chapter 4. You see now, if you're saved this, this evening, you've put your trust, you've accepted that payment, you've taken advantage of that function of the gospel. When God sees you, He doesn't just see the absence of sin. He also sees the presence of the righteousness of Jesus. All of that is made possible because of the gospel. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So it's not, not only do we see the function here, but the next thing that we see, we ask the question, who is it for? In that verse it says, it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone. You know what? We see the availability of the gospel. The availability of it. Now, there is a belief system or a school of thought, an idea that I'm sure some of you are familiar with. Some of you have maybe have never heard of it. And if you haven't heard of it, then close up your ears and don't listen to this part right here. But most likely you have. It has quite a few different names. There's a guy named John Calvin who initiated this belief system. A lot of people call him Calvinist. Some people call him Reformed theologist. And basically, they believe the notion of the easiest way to say it is limited atonement. Jesus died on the cross, and he made atonement for the sins of a limited group of people. Just a certain group of people are allowed to be saved. Some people call it predestination. It's basically where people believe that only a certain group did Jesus actually die for? You know what's amazing about that? I've read a lot about it. Charles Spurgeon was, was a, a Calvinist. Um, and I can start listing guys that are current today that would blow your hair back that are, that are, that are Reformed theologists. But here's the thing that's always kind of confused me about that. I've never met anyone that said, yeah, I'm just not, I wasn't predestined. I'm not one of the elect. I wasn't, I wasn't, well, I'm not in the limited atoned. So I can't get saved, but I still love God. Never heard that before. Just so happens that everybody that believes this Calvinistic idea or this Calvinistic doctrine, they happen to be one of the ones that Jesus died for. You know what? And and I, I say this with humility because there's a lot of men that believe this system that are much smarter than I am. But it's just hard for me to wrap my mind around that when the Bible says in 2 Peter 3, 9 that the Lord is not slack concerning his promise. His son men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. How many times have you turned on an NFL football game and seen that sign at the back behind the goalpost? It says John three sixteen on it. That should dispel every Calvinistic belief in the world for whosoever... For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Whosoever, to me, includes, it's all inclusive. 
It's anyone and everyone that wants to put their trust in Christ, who wants to take advantage and wants to believe in that function of the gospel that Jesus died and paid my sin debt. You can be afforded that that reconciliation, that being joined back to God through the gospel. It's available to everyone. Not only do we see the availability of it, we answer the question, who is it for? But we ask the question, how does it work? Well, it says there, to everyone that believeth. Acts 8, 26 through 40 is the story about Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. And they're walking along, and the Ethiopian asks Philip, he says, here's water, what doth prevent me from being baptized? Now, he didn't have all of his theology exactly straight, the the Ethiopian didn't. He just knew, I want to be with you guys. I want to be associated with y'all. I want to be joined back to you guys. He said, I want to get baptized because I know when I get baptized, that aligns me up with you Christians. You remember what Philip's response to him was? He said, if you believe, you can. The prerequisite to baptism is salvation. Baptism has nothing to do with salvation. There are separate things. Baptism is just to show that you have been saved and you've aligned yourself with a group of believers and you associate with them. But the prerequisite to that baptism, the thing that comes before it, is not some set of rules you have to keep. It's not... I've heard people put these conditions on salvation. Well, you've got to repent and you've got to make Him Lord of your life. And That's not what it says there. It says believe. But you see, when a person truly believes in the Lord, it encompasses all of those things. Now, how can I believe in Jesus? How can I put my trust in Him and not turn my back on my sin? Because the word repent means a change of mind. The way way I've had it explained to me and the way I understand it is at one point I was walking towards the world and when I believed in Jesus, I turned and began to walk towards Him. I had a change of mind, I had a change of heart. In order for me to believe in Him, there's no way I can do that without repenting, without changing my mind, without turning my back on the world. And you know, it really doesn't matter if I make Him Lord or not. He is Lord. But if I believe in Him, I'm recognizing Him as Lord. So this belief, it's kind of like a wheel with spokes. I'm not sure where the wheel starts and which spoke is first. They just turn together, and they're all part of the same thing. When I believe in Jesus, it's repentance is part of it. Making Him Lord is part of it. Moving towards Him is all part of it. But it's really simple, childlike faith, and I believe in something that I can't necessarily explain. I don't necessarily understand. I can't make sense all, out of all of it. I don't believe that you've got to take a person through New Testament survey before they can get saved. Philip didn't do that here. He simply said, if thou believe. With the Philip, uh, um, Philippian jailer in Acts chapter 16, jail pops open. He thinks everybody's escaped. He's going to kill himself. He's melting down, this jailer is. And Paul and Silas stop him and say, hey, hold up, don't do that. Ain't nobody gone. We're all still here. And it dawns on him. I believe that this jailer becomes under conviction. I believe that he's drawn by the Holy Spirit. These are all things that are part of salvation. They have nothing to do with me. The requirement that's on me in order to be saved is to believe. He asked them, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And their answer was very simply, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. We make this thing really complicated because... We think it, I think in our finite humanistic minds, it just seems too simple. And really, if you look throughout history and you look throughout the scripture, God dealt with man in different ways throughout the Bible and different dispensations of the scripture. And we kept failing. And He sent the ultimate sacrifice to pay the ultimate price for a flawed group of people so that all we have to do is trust in the work that Jesus did on Calvary to pay our sin debt. How does this gospel, what is the distinction of our belief system from every other belief system? I think, first of all, it's it's the origin. It's about Jesus. All through the Bible, it's about Jesus. You go back to Genesis chapter 3, where where 
in, in verse 15 where the first mention of the gospel comes in, where it first talks about Jesus and he'll pay our sins for us. He'll pay our sin debt for us. It, there's a prophecy of what Jesus will someday come and do on the cross. And You move into Abraham and there's typology all through the story of Abraham. Obviously, the story of Isaac is a, a picture of Jesus dying and paying our sin debt. You move from Abraham into Joseph and Joseph's a great picture of Christ and what he did for us and how he saved us and you move into Noah or Moses and there's all kind of of things about Moses that are topologies of Christ Joshua the great picture of Jesus and the leadership David the king of the Israel the wisdom of Solomon all of these things point to one thing Jesus he's the origin of this system that is so distinctive tonight we see the function of it it is the very thing that reconciles us back to God. We see the availability of it. It's available to everyone, whosoever will. We see the condition of it. What do I have to do? You have to believe. You have to put your trust in Christ. Pure and simple. Those other things are part of it. A person that believes repents. A person that believes makes him Lord. That's part of believing in Jesus. It's not a belief like I believe in George Washington. It's not a mental ascent to a fact. When you believe in Jesus, you have an understanding that I'm a sinner and he paid that sin debt for me and I trust in that to make me okay with God. But what is the price? You see, earlier in this passage, Paul refers to himself as a debtor. And anytime there's a debt, that means there's a cost involved. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19 says, For as much as you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation, received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish and without spot. You know, it was a very expensive price. It cost Jesus his life, but it was free to us. That's a hard thing for, for us to wrap our minds around. You know, I use this illustration all the time. Uh, I have a pen here. I got this pen in, when I was in the car business, and, and it's kind of, a, kind of an expensive pen. And I couldn't buy it now, but I've hung on to it just because it has some value to me, some sentimental value. And if I took this pen and I said, hey, man, I'm going to give you this pen, all right? You can have this pen. But before I give you this pen, I need you to go out and wash my truck. Would that be a gift? No, absolutely not. What about if I said, uh, I'm going to give you this pen, but before I give you this pen, I've got a list of rules here, and you've got to keep these rules for 30 days. You do them, check all these things off, then you can have the pen. Is that a gift? No. no, it's not a gift, it's a reward. The Bible says that salvation is a gift. It's no strings attached. The only condition upon salvation is that you receive it. Even if I did give this pen to one of them, which I'm not going to, <laughs> if I did give this pen to one of them, they would have to accept it. They would have to receive it. There is a very high price on paying our sin debt. There's a very high cost that makes our belief system in the gospel distinct from every other belief system. And that is that, the, that God sacrificed His very own Son to pay our sin debt. That's an expensive price tag. But the price tag to us is free. That's what makes our belief system distinct from all the rest. That's what makes us different from all the rest. That's why they don't like us. Because we have something that is different than what they believe. You know what? Uh, there's something else that's very interesting about our belief system. When you go back to the availability of it and even the conditions of it. When I was in Nepal on a mission trip, there was a, uh, you know, we, there were some pictures, if you've seen the video, where we went to this, this temple. And at that temple, all kind of things going on in this Hindu temple. Mostly, the most staggering thing is that they're, they're cremating bodies um, on these, look like altars, but they, they didn't call them altars. There were just these little pads where they would lay these bodies out and, and stack wood all over them and around them and set it on fire. And literally, you're just watching people across this little river, their bodies being burned. And all up and down these, this, this walkway or this platform, next to this river where, where there'd be a Hindu priest over here performing some kind of little ceremony and uh, other ones, over, really, really crazy looking stuff. But not one time 
that I get the opportunity to join the Hindu faith. Nowhere did somebody say, hey, would you like me to tell you about Hinduism and you can have the opportunity to join our religious belief system. That's what's great about, about the gospel. That's what's great about salvation. Is it's available. It's afforded to everyone. There's no exclusivity in it. There's nothing that, 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 that it's not like a fancy restaurant that you've got to have your name on a list. All you have to do is be willing to believe. Well, that's the distinction of the gospel. The last thing, and this won't take very long, the last thing about the gospel and the greatness of it is the distribution of the gospel. Now, you know, if I were God, it seems like it would have made sense to send angels to tell all of the earth about Jesus and his paying our sin debt. Can you imagine if, if, if I, I got a feeling that, that you guys would probably listen to uh, Gabriel or Michael, the archangel, tonight a little better than you would me. I have a feeling that his presence would be a little bit more dominating than mine. The big sword and he's glowing and whatever big scary angels look like. They're not little fat babies with bow and arrows. But that's not what God chose to do. That's not the route he chose. He chose us to distribute the story of the gospel. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 18-20, through 20, it says, And all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ, and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation, to wit that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Now then... We are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us. We pray you in Christ's stead, be you reconciled to God. Here's what happened. We were joined back to God as a result of the gospel. Then once we were reconciled back to God, he gave us the job of sharing with a lost and dying world what took place in our lives that joined us back to God and gave us the job of telling other people. If you were here a couple Sundays ago, I think it was on a Sunday I told the story about the guy that agreed that made the deal with God to take the suitcase into heaven and it was full of gold and they said hey hey this guy's got a suitcase full of pavement he's wanting to bring in and, you know it's just kind of a funny little story to to put into perspective what value is to us and we think gold's worth a lot and that's what they're paving the streets with in heaven you know you can't take money into heaven can't take your favorite piece of jewelry in I won't be able to take my pen in but you know what I can take with me a person that I've led to Christ. A person that I've been able to take my Bible and share the gospel with them and tell them what Jesus did for me. We went on a mission trip to uh, uh, the Dominican. One of the greatest things about it, man, is we sat there day after day with people with the opportunity to share the gospel through interpreters and seen over, over 600 people saved in a, in, in a week's time. And we had to personally take our Bibles and share the gospel with these people and lead them to Christ. That's what you can do. You see, God could have given that job. He could have given that job to the angels, and I feel like that probably because of their greatness, they might could have done a better job than us, but that's not what he chose. That wasn't his plan. He chose for us to be given the job of reconciliation, to go out and tell people and bring them to Christ. You know, in John 4, 35, it says, Look on the fields, for they are white already to harvest. In this passage, in this story, after Jesus has just led the woman at the well, and she goes back to Samaria, and they look up, and here comes this flood of Samaritans that she's bringing back. She goes and says, hey, man, you've got to come see this guy. He's told me everything I've ever done in my life. He is the Son of God. It's got to be him. And so here comes this throng of people that are coming down to this well, and Jesus tells the disciples, he says, look at these people. Look at the fields, for they're white already into harvest. He used the illustration of a, of a field, and I think about that, and there's a few things that I see when I see a field that's wide in the harvest. The first thing that you see is a multitude. Now, I didn't grow up in Kansas or, 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 or Nebraska. I don't think about it in terms of wheat or corn. I'm from Alabama, and when I think about a field that's wide in the harvest, I think about cotton. You know, you go up 
to the Tennessee River Valley and you go up I-65 around Madison and the 565 exit and all those cotton fields. And, and this time of the year when they're, that cotton's out and it's full and it's white, you know what's incredible about that? Jesus, in this illustration, he didn't use a, a, a big diamond that come out of a, a mine. He, he used something there was a lot of. You know, there are over 7.4 billion people on the earth today. And according to really, really, really liberal statistics, less than a third of the people claim Christianity. And see, there's a... I don't want to ruffle any feathers, but there's a lot of things included in that term of Christianity there that, that I wouldn't call Christianity. I wouldn't classify that as Christianity because if you believe what they believe, you'll die and go to hell. So to me, that's not Christianity. So that reduces the number even more. But even by their statistics, that means over 5 billion people tonight are on their way to hell. That's a multitude. Let me put it into perspective how much a billion is, okay? To me, a million is a lot especially when you start talking in terms of dollars, right? Give me a million dollars right now. I think I could be really careful with it. I'm an old man. I'm 44 years old. I believe I could coast on out with a million, all right? I have to be careful with it, but I believe I could do it. I'd like to try it. Let me just put it that way. But a million seconds is a little over, it's about 11 and a half days. Seems like a long time, right? You had to hold your breath for a million seconds. That'd be rough, wouldn't it? 11 and a half days. Do you know how long a billion seconds is? It's 32 years. A billion seconds in comparison to a million seconds. A million seconds is 11 days. A billion seconds is 32 years. Go ahead and get your phone out and do the calculation. I did it because I wanted to make sure that that was true. It is true. A billion is a lot. Five billion people on this planet are dying going to hell. But you know what? It's not just a multitude that I see when I see a field that is, that is ripe into harvest. The next thing that you see there is he didn't use, you know, gold in a mine that you got to dig and have special equipment and go really deep and it's really difficult to get to. He used something of multitude, but he also used something of access. You know, if you're driving along and you pull over to the side of the road where there's a cotton field, all you got to do is just get out of the car and you walk a few feet and you're right in the middle of the cotton field, right? You can just go to picking. Can I tell you something? You don't have to go to Dominican. I, I wish you would. We're going to Brazil this year, and I hope a lot of you, I hope we have a 25-person availability, and I hope I have to make some people mad and tell them they can't go because you were too late on the list, or maybe we'd make two trips or something. But you don't have to go to Dominican. You don't have to go to Brazil. You don't have to go to Nepal. What about your neighbor? What about the person who's, whose child plays on your child's little league team? about the cashier at the grocery store, the person that's in the cubicle next to you where you work or works on the line at the plant beside you. You know, we act real funny about it. We act really, really, we get really wigged out about religion. You're not supposed to talk about politics or religion. Well, I don't really care about talking about politics, will you? But it's not religion. That person that you're neglecting to share the gospel with could be in that five billion, and if they die without Christ, they'll spend eternity in hell. So what if they get a little bit wiggy because you ask them if they're going to heaven? What if you ask them, if you're going to heaven and they say, you know what, I never really thought about it. And you get the opportunity to share your story and then share God's story and they put their trust in Christ and it changes their life. I mean, we can tell story after story about that. This room's full of people of somebody that invited them to church. Somebody that told them about Christ and they put their trust in Christ and got saved and started coming. But somehow we lose that. We lose the fact that somebody shared the gospel with me. And our job is to share it with other people. And we have access to people every single day that need to hear what Jesus has done for them. Not only that, he didn't use sand on a seashore to make this illustration. There's lots and lots of sand. I mean, you can go to the, to the beach and you can just, I mean, sand, it's innumerable. You know, pick each little grain of sand up. I wonder how many grains of sand there is on a beach. So there's a lot of that. But he used something of value. He used a field that is wide in the harvest, very valuable I think about the value of a soul, and if you took all of the currency in the world and you put it in a big stack, and you took all of the valuable jewels and the deed to every valuable piece of property, and everything that you could find of value, and you put it in one big heap, it would not buy one soul out of hell. Not one. The only thing that will pay for a soul out of hell is the blood of Christ. And it's a very valuable thing. My question to you tonight is, are you participating in the distribution of the gospel? 
Are you telling people about the value of what you possess tonight, of what you've taken advantage of tonight? My dad talks about when he was a kid, I called him this. <laughs> my dad's great. I called him this afternoon and was asking him some stories and some questions about this because he grew up on a cotton farm in Walter. And he was telling me stories about when he was a kid that on certain days he and his brother switched off going to school. One of them would go to school one day and the other one would stay home and work. And the next day his brother would go to school and he'd stay home and work. And, and that was just part of the gig. And somebody asked me, well, what did school say about that? I said, I don't know, but I don't really think my granddad cared either. That's just how it was. But we got to talking about it. I said, now this time of the year, Dad, when it was time to pick cotton, didn't you guys, I asked him, I said, didn't y'all stay out of school for that? He said, I don't know, they turned school out for that. He said, are you kidding? He said, you got two weeks out of school when it was time for, to pick cotton. I said, oh, was that like spring break? He said, well, I don't know what they call it now. He said, but then they turned out school to pick cotton. That's what you called it. Do you know what it is? When you see a field that is ripe in a harvest, it's very urgent. That's why everything stopped. That's why school stopped. That's why uh, going to town stopped. Everything shut down because it was time to pick cotton. Because if you don't get it in and a storm comes or it's left too long in the field, it'll be ruined. And when he used that example, that illustration of a field that is wide in the harvest, he used something of multitude, something of access, something of value, and something of urgency. Because you see, the Bible says that Jesus will come as a thief in the night. What if it were today? What if Jesus returned today and those that are Christians, those that are part of the church, were raptured out and those five billion or more were left here on the earth? Then what? They've missed out on the, on the gospel They've missed out on taking advantage of the free gift of salvation of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because when you move into the tribulation, the ballgame changes. It's not the same. You see, we possess, we have in our own, if you're here tonight and you've put your trust in Christ and you know you're saved and you're on your way to heaven, then you possess that salvation. You've taken advantage of that gospel. You understand, hopefully after tonight, what the definition of the gospel is, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. You have a concept of what the distinction of the gospel is, how it separates us from every other belief system. But my question to you tonight is, what are you doing with the distribution of that gospel? How are you personally participating in distributing the gospel? Through your own testimony? Through his story? through your financial assistance to mission, foreign missions and local missions? and How are you participating in this thing? My question to you tonight is always, when, when you share information, I said this the other day, the difference between preaching and teaching is a, a, a teacher communicates information, and a preacher asks you to make a decision about the information that's been communicated. My decision for you tonight is, whatever you're doing, do a little more. However you're participating in the distribution of the gospel and sharing it with other people, just do some more. Missions Emphasis Month starts next week. We're a week after next. And you're going to begin to see more and more about it. And I just want to ask you, in this month in October, right now, start praying, start thinking about what can I do. Every head bowed and every eye closed. Heavenly Father, thank you for tonight and thank you for the opportunity to be